Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to read two power-packed little verses, verse 32 and 33. It says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. You know, I have discovered that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who say yogurt and those who say yogurt. Yes, that's you, is it, Dave? You're accepted in the beloved. Is there anyone here who is a yogurt sayer? Give me a wave. Yeah, I probably wouldn't want to admit it either. Okay, we can pray for you later. We will open the altars. It would be my honor to minister to you. But there are two kinds of people, yogurt and yogurt. And I just so happen to have some yogurt here with me tonight. We all love yogurt. Why? Because yogurt is good for our bodies. (laughs) It's filled with culture and probiotics that have numerous health benefits for us. For example, just one little swig of your cult, which my mother used to put in my lunchbox every day. Not gonna lie, doesn't taste the greatest. But the reason we drink it every day is because this power-packed little drink has millions of live lactobacillus culture. Uh Uh-huh, millions right there. Next, up the ranks at about a casual seven doll hairs from your Woolies or Coles is the Valia Probiotics Boost Digestion and Immunity Creamy French Vanilla here tonight. First one up here after church, you can have this. It has been sitting on the front seat of my car all day and it's now probably cottage cheese. You're welcome. But this one has billions of live and active cultures. Whoa. And then there is the piece de resistance, my favorite, Koyo. Now, I do sometimes hear my husband in the prayer closet like, why, Lord? Why did I have to marry the only woman who pays $11 for Koyo? So all the men in the room are going to start praying more for him. But this is my favorite. This is Koyo. And guess what? This has $5 billion plant cultures, and all the dairy intolerant people said, amen. Here's the thing about the yogurt. The stronger the culture, the better it is for your body, but you're going to have to pay for the culture. Now, you and I, the Apostle Paul tells us, are the body of Christ. And in the same way, the stronger the culture, the better it's going to be for our church body and the fulfillment of the mission that Jesus has given us. Interestingly, if I opened one of these yogurts and took a big, healthy spoonful, you wouldn't be able to show me where the culture is. It's within the yogurt. This is because culture is mostly made up of intangibles. It's all around us, but it's hard to put our finger on exactly what it is that makes a good culture. What is culture? Well, culture is the collective ideas, 
the customs and the beliefs that shape group behavior. Another way of putting that is culture is the lens or the worldview through which we view our life. The awesome thing is we change our lens. We can actually change the trajectory of our lives. And culture comes from a word that's actually a horticultural word that means to tend or to nurture or to care for the earth, to cultivate. And a good gardener or a farmer knows how to work the soil, prepare the soil, provide nutrients to the soil, and also knows how to remove anything from the soil that could inhibit the growth of the seed. And the same thing has to be done in my life and in your life for God to grow good culture so that we can bear fruit. Now, part of the cost of having strong and healthy culture is that we have to be really proactive about removing and identifying anything toxic in our culture, anything within the soil that might spoil the seed from producing fruit. Now, maybe you're sitting here today and going, toxic, what are you talking about? Well, here's some examples of what toxic soil or culture could look like in the life of our church. Gossip, slander, pride, jealousy, envy, a competitive spirit with one another, comparison. Again, I love what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. He describes the the church like a body. And it's a really strange little passage because he uses this odd metaphor where the ear talks to the foot and the hand talks to the elbow and all these weird things. What's his point? That what we say about one another really matters. What we say about our church really matters. What we say about our leaders when we think nobody is watching really matters. What we say about the global church really matters. You know, there are other toxicities that sometimes creep into the culture of the church because we've picked them up from the prevailing culture of the world. For example, one that I feel like the Holy Spirit's really pressing on at the moment is we're not meant to come to church like consumers. We're not meant to have a consumerist mindset when it comes to the family of God. Why does culture matter in a church? Well, culture is to a church what soil is to a plant. And if the soil is contaminated, then healthy and living things will eventually die. The good news is when the soil is healthy, even unhealthy things can return to a place of health and will flourish and will have new life. You know, I watched a documentary recently and I've been doing uh, a little bit of reading on the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986, which caused thousands of cancers. And there is still to this day an exclusion zone of 2,600 square kilometres because there is still radiation in the soil. There is still toxicity within the soil. What happens is that toxicity in the soil actually causes the DNA chains of living things to garble or to mutate. So in a human, what happens is our DNA adapts and we grow tumours or cancers. Same thing happens in animals. But what is so fascinating is how a plant responds to toxic soil. 
what happens is they mutate their DNA chain. They literally build protective walls in their stem or their trunk or their leaf structure to protect them from the toxicity around them. Now, if we apply that to the culture of the church, can we never be a church culture where people have to build up walls of protection to survive the toxicity around them? You see, every church has a culture that either helps or hinders its growth. It actually doesn't matter how clear or compelling the vision is, and Pastor Corey presented a very clear and compelling vision doesn't matter how solid the strategy is of how we're going to achieve that vision and that mission. If the culture is toxic, it will kill the seed of vision and it will choke the strategy. I don't know if you've noticed this in your workplace, your school, in your family, but culture never automatically trends up. It defaults to the lowest common denominator. In other words, we don't build a good culture by accident. You're not going to fall into or stumble into a good culture. In fact, we are called to define and design it. Otherwise, the culture will default to the point of least resistance. That's actually the way our brains are wired. It saves us energy. It gives us more brain space. We are wired and created in our brains to look for the easiest and the quickest route and to take it every single time. But good culture isn't necessarily built on the easiest and the quickest route. In fact, sometimes good culture is built the long way around on the slow burn, but everybody's moving in one direction. In our passage today in Acts 4, two little verses, we see a very healthy culture in action in the early church. You see, the New Testament church had a clearly defined and an apostolically designed kingdom culture. I love that it talks about the full number of believers were of one heart and soul. In other words, there was unity around the culture. Our verses also tell us they had everything in common. I'll unpack this a little bit more in a minute, but basically they were living in a very generous culture. There was unity, there was generosity. Verse 33 talks about there was great power in the apostles' testimony. This speaks of a supernatural culture. And we also read that great grace was upon them all. Their culture was marked by God's favor. So here we see unity We see generosity, we see a supernatural culture with signs and wonders, and we see a culture marked by God's favor. Now, I want to take a moment here, and I want to make a few observations about the culture of the time, the culture of the world in the time that Luke wrote this passage, because the kingdom culture that was evident in the early church was actually really, really radical in the context of the society. You see, when it comes to the unity around culture, one of the most influential philosophers at the time was Aristotle. And most other philosophers kind of riffed off his work and they kind of dominated culture, he dominated cultural thought at the time. And he said this, and then lots of other historians and philosophers quoted him. He said that friendship 
is one soul dwelling in two bodies. So to the Greeks and the Romans, there was this prevailing cultural thought that as Christians, we don't believe, but it was the world's culture at the time, that friendship is one soul in two bodies. In other words, when Luke writes that the New Testament church was of one heart and one soul, the New Testament church was achieving what the Greek philosophers could not. They were achieving through the work of Jesus Christ what the world's culture saw as an ideal but could not reach or attain. When we talk about the generosity and culture, the Greeks also had what they called the golden age. And what the golden age would look like when they philosophized about it was that instead of owning all their own stuff, Everything would be in common and there'd be like this group ownership. Well, guess who achieved the golden age? The New Testament church through the work of Jesus Christ. So when, Paul, when Luke uses these specific words, what he is saying is the church was the fulfillment of their culture of origin goals. It was like they were living the dream all through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus' kingdom ushered in the golden age in this society. Now stay with me for a minute, because looking at the context of where this passage sits in the greater story, in verse 33 we read that the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, great grace was upon them all, start of 33, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony. Now this word great power here is the word dunamis or dynamite. For those of you who were here last week, Pastor Corey preached an example in his Disciple the Nation's message, and he talked about a stick of dynamite. And if you light a stick of dynamite and you throw it in the air, you might see some bells and whistles and a little bit of fire, but it's gone pretty quickly. But then he talked about if you light a stick of dynamite and you put it in a rock face, you get a very different outcome. In fact, you get an opening into a mountain. Now, stay with me here. We're talking here about Peter and the apostles. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, stay here because the Holy Spirit's going to come and he will give you what? Power, dynamite, dunamis, power. Now we're seeing in Acts 2, they're there in a prayer meeting, they're praying, the culture of heaven, the Holy Spirit's power comes and it fills who? The apostles, including Peter. What did Jesus call Peter in Matthew 16, 18? You are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. So what we're seeing here is the culture of heaven, the dynamite, the power of heaven comes down, is put inside of Peter, and now we're actually seeing Peter go about and literally blow things up for the kingdom, and there's an opening for the kingdom of God to infiltrate the world's culture. So what must define the culture of Numa Church more than anything else? The values of the kingdom of God. God hasn't asked us to reinvent the wheel. He's calling us to follow the pattern of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 4, 17, Jesus came preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why did he say this? Because true repentance means to change the way we think and therefore the way we act. He was saying, I want you to come in to my, when you come into my kingdom, I'm going to teach you a whole new way to think and it's not going to be anything like the way the world thinks. When we come in to the kingdom of God in which Jesus is king, 
we enter into a lifelong process with the Holy Spirit of being transformed, renewed in our minds to think in alignment with kingdom culture and not the culture of this world. You know, I've made a little bit of an observation that we're living in an age of cultural chameleons. And we celebrate it and we call it adaptability. My kids' primary school had a value, adaptability. In other words, go and fit in wherever you're put and we'll celebrate that and call it adaptability. But I want to say to you tonight that to walk the talk, you have to have a talk to walk. To walk the talk, you actually have to have a talk to walk. And so in a world of changing values and subjective truth, we actually need to know what our values are so we know what it is that we're standing up for. It's actually a time for cultural standouts, not cultural chameleons. And I'm not going to stand up here and be like, that's going to be easy for you. It's not going to be easy. It's not easy for me. But God is calling us to be cultural transformers. And having a set of deeply held values, kingdom culture values, allows us to focus What it does is it says a bunch of yeses and nos for us. It helps us to live amongst a plethora of competing voices, beliefs, opinions, paradigms, and interests. So with all of that in mind, what are our values? What are our kingdom culture values? Well, firstly, prayer fuels power. And we are always asking this question, have you prayed about it? I love Acts 1.14. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Our word prayer actually comes from the Latin word precarious. We actually pray because life is precarious. Oswald Chambers said, we tend to use prayer as a last resort, but God wants it to be our first line of defense. We pray when there's nothing else we can do. But God wants us to pray before we do anything at all. You know, I find it so fascinating that Jesus and the disciples were together for three and a half years. Think about what the disciples witnessed. They saw Jesus casting demons out of people. They saw Jesus tell Lazarus to come out of the tomb and he came out. They saw Jesus heal the blind. They saw Jesus heal the mute. They saw Jesus do incredible things. They saw him at the well with that woman, prophesying and evangelizing. They were there when he preached his kingdom culture message, his Sermon on the Mount. They were there for all of it. Did they come to Jesus and say, can you teach me to heal? Can you teach me to preach? Can you teach me how to prophesy? What's interesting to me is that these are the questions we ask in church of our leaders. And it's not that those questions are wrong, it's that there's a greater question and it's the question the disciples asked. They said, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Why was it that that's the question they asked Jesus? Because they understood that prayer is the well from which all of life flows. And without prayer, there is no flow. This is why we pray before every service. It's why we have prayer power. It's why we have prayer and healing. It's why you pray at life group. It's why we open the altars during worship. 
It's why we don't have a separate prayer team, but everybody in leadership in the life of this church is equipped and knows how to minister to others in prayer. I had some friends in uh, Brisbane last year who their church wasn't able to put together online church during COVID. And so they were joining our church and they're from a quite conservative movement. And their one piece of feedback was, I could not believe how much you pray in your services. I was like, yeah, we do, because prayer fuels power. You guys should try it sometime. (laughs) The second one is God's word is our foundation. And we're always asking, what does God's word say about that? I love what social researcher Brené Brown said. Daring people who live into their values are never silent about hard things. If you've ever read this book you'll notice it's not silent about hard things. And we actually can't say that we love Jesus and not love his word. Because the Bible is Jesus in print. And when it comes to spiritual formation and transformation, the Bible is our foundation. You know, if you said to me, Stacey, what did you eat on, uh, for breakfast on the 25th of January, 2022? I couldn't tell you, but the reason I can stand here with energy tonight is because I did eat breakfast on the 26th of January, 2022. Word life is the same. You might be able to tell me exactly what you read two weeks ago, but when you're going to it day after day after day, even when the angels aren't singing and the lightning bolts aren't happening, what you're doing is you're nourishing your spirit. You see, we simply cannot reach for maturity in Christ without a word life. I remember chatting with um, Dr. Mike, or affectionately dropped the mic, uh, a little while ago, and I was asking for his advice because I was uh, doing life with someone I was discipling, and I felt like I'd just reached a lid. And so when I asked them, what does God's word say about it? They said, well, actually, I don't read the Bible. I find it really hard. And I was like, whoa, okay. I actually don't know what to do about this because I'm not God and I can't do his work in your life and you really need his word. So I was chatting to Dr. Mike about it and he said to me, you know what, before I was saved, I didn't like reading. But because I fell in love with Jesus, didn't actually matter what I liked doing, I fell in love with his word and now he's got like 58,000 degrees and letters behind his name. He had to read a lot of books to get that, all motivated by his love for Jesus. You know, we talked about toxicities in the soil earlier. I believe a potential toxicity is actually viewing or reading the word through the lens of the world rather than viewing the world through the lens of the word. I read an illustration that talks about the clash of cultures when it comes to the way we read the Bible. And what this woman described is there's actually studies done on this in the last decade, that the co-piloting systems, the way that, um, that that was come up with was in the United States. So when you go fly, well, when it's not COVID, when you go on a plane somewhere, there's two pilots. There's the pilot and the co-pilot. And the whole system only works if the co-pilot points out the small mistakes the pilot is making. Now, what happened is this system was rolled out all across the world. 
Now, there's actually documented air crashes in Asia because the culture, their culture of origin was we would never shame someone who's in authority over us. So they would not point out the small faults the pilot was making and there were crashes that cost people's lives. So they had to go back to the drawing board in terms of how those systems would work within that culture. Sometimes that's a little bit like how we approach the Bible. We read it, we see it through the filter of the way we've been raised and the culture of the word and then a world and then we end up crashing and blaming God and his word when it's not the word's fault the word works it's that we have to put in the effort to learn to study it and to read it the right way Hebrews 4:12 it's one of my favorites it says for the word of God is living and active it's sharper than any two-edged sword It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I don't know about you, but I need that kind of discernment. I need that kind of surgeon's knife in my heart. And the word gives that. A third one is that making disciples is not optional. And the question we're always asking is, who are you discipling? Notice I didn't say, who's discipling you? I said, who are you discipling? We want to build a culture where we are discipling others. I love what Bill Johnson said. If I have a power encounter with God, which we are required to pursue, then I am equipped to give that away to others. This is the ministry of Jesus. Use the power and authority of God to carry on the ministry of Jesus in the way that Jesus did it. He makes it sound so simple, doesn't he? But this is what the Great Commission is. Being filled with the power and boldness through the Holy Spirit to complete the mission Jesus gave us. You know, just this past Monday was my Sabbath, and I was actually praying for the people in my life group. And I was just praying that God would give me wisdom to know how to disciple them and how to love them and to just give me his heart for them. Help me to see them the way you see them. And immediately I went into this vision. And in this vision, I was sitting at a banquet table that I often go to with Jesus, as you do, right? And I'm sitting at one end and he's sitting at the other end, but we weren't where we normally are. We were in this massive, big hot house. And there was all these beautiful plants around us. And as I began to talk to him about the people in my life group by name, Lord, give me wisdom for this person. Show me how you see this person. The hot house filled with butterflies. As far as my eye could see, in colors I can't even describe. Some big, some small, every single one absolutely glorious. Every single one so individually painted by the finger of God. And he said to me, transformation is going to surround you this year, Stacey, as this church prioritizes this new discipleship model. You watch what I will do. You watch them come alive in full high definition color and you watch them soar and you watch them fly. This is why we are prioritizing what you'll hear a lot about this year. Our Sunday coming together in the corporate gathering and then our Wednesday discipleship rhythm. Fourth, miracles are normal. The confronting question is the supernatural part of my daily experience. Troy Good says, when you get close to God's face, the things that are found only in heaven 
start appearing on the earth. Growing up, I grew up in a cessationist church, which means basically they don't believe in prophets. <laughs> and they don't believe in signs and wonders. <laughs> My parents are so proud. <laughs> the problem was, I had a Bible. And right from a young age, as soon as I could read, I'm reading it, I'm like, hang on a second. This doesn't line up with my experience of church. And so I have had a hunger for miracles and the supernatural and to never settle for living in anything less than the fullness of Christ. Do you know that you can live in the fullness of the redeemed personality of how Christ has made you in the beautiful tapestry of the family of God? You can enjoy the fullness of what is on the menu in the Word of God. And that's actually what church looks like. You know, just a couple of Sunday nights ago, right here in this 5 p.m. service, um, to be honest, we were in a pretty awkward musical transition. I was worship leading, and I was doing what, giving away the trade secrets here, we sometimes do when there's an awkward musical transition. I started praying. <laughs> and I just felt the Holy Spirit say, just tell me that there were people experiencing night terrors, and that just with one sentence, just pray to that. So I said, God is breaking the power of night terrors right now, no more from this moment forward. It was quiet, no bells and whistles, pretty awkward, really. And a few days later, I had a young woman in our church send me a six-minute video, bursting with excitement, because for 10 years, every night, she had been experiencing night terrors, to the point where she would wake up covered in bruises, that's how violent her dreams were. And other people were asking her if she was in an abusive relationship. That's how violent her night terrors were. She heard that one little sentence in the quiet that I thought was pretty awkward. She grabbed a hold of it and guess what? No more night terrors since. It doesn't have to be big, it doesn't have to be loud, it doesn't have to be huge with bombs going off and unicorns flying around the room. It can be a tiny little thing at the prompting of the Holy Spirit because miracles are completely normal and they don't have a box that they have to fit in. Smith Wigglesworth, hero, said, God has privileged us in Christ Jesus to live above the ordinary human plane of life. Those who want to be ordinary and live on a lower plane, go right ahead. But as for me, I will not. You know, I pray we get a bit of the old Smith Wigglesworth about us. I'm not going to live lower than what I read in my Bible. When I understand and when I don't. When I get the answers I want and when I don't. I am not going to dumb down my prayers to the level of my little life's experience. Number five, love gives generously. Am I growing in generosity? When we get a glimpse of God's heart for something, our giving follows. Generosity is contagious. I love it when I go out on Bridge Road and I see our people from church like fighting to get their card on the FPOS machine. I love that because generosity is contagious. In fact, there's a cafe I go to my local, the guy said to me, why do you and your husband always pick someone random and just pay for their table? 
There's only one other lady who comes to this cafe who does that. I said, oh, really? I said, well, because we just want to bless people and we believe God is generous and we just want to be generous to others. And he goes, oh, cool. Anyway, I was back there one day with my friend Roma Waterman. This waiter comes over and he goes, you're the two who always pay for other people's tables. I was like, yeah, we know each other and we know each other from church. And I've actually become friends with this waiter. He's a young music producer and I just know God's going to save him. How did those conversations open up? Because we just were generous. Heaven has the ultimate culture of abundance. And when we live stingy lives, it's actually because we have an incorrect perception of God and his kingdom. But when we live generously, the church actually begins to look just like that experience in that cafe. And I'm not special. We can all do this. When we fall in love with God, we fall in love with his people and we just want to give everything away. We want to represent him well. In John 3.16, we read, we are never, that God so loved the world that he what? He gave his only son. And we are never more like God than when we are giving. You know, I've had four kids. And here is one thing I can testify to. When they first come out, all of life is about them. They can't do anything for you. They just need your love. They're completely dependent on you. And when they cry, a bunch of people run to help them. A bunch of people feed them, change their nappies. We're like at their little beck and call. But as we mature... Maturity is measured in part by our ability to contribute to our surroundings. What we give away, not what we take. And the strength we provide for others. It's called living a generous life. Number six, freedom is a responsibility. We're always asking, how am I stewarding my freedom? I, everybody here knows I'm obsessed with Paul. Galatians 5.13, he writes, for you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. You know, I've noticed that when people cannot see the ultimate, they become slaves to the immediate. When people can't see the big picture of the kingdom, because they're so blinded by that lens or worldview of self, feeding self, they will give in to the immediate. Freedom is not about obeying every immediate thought, whim, and want. That's slavery to self. I've lived there. It doesn't go well. Freedom is a biblical concept introduced by God himself as the very essence and purpose of our existence. But it's nothing like our world's definition of freedom. In Galatians 5 that I just quoted from, Paul is actually talking to a group of people who are learning how to live in community, learning how to love one another and to live well together, how to have a culture that reflects kingdom. And he addresses two approaches with them. He says, look, here, guys, you're fighting over stuff. You're getting caught up in culture of the world. Let me tell you the way this needs to work. He's very direct. He's like, some of you are reverting back to slavery to the law. I have to live exactly like this. I have to wear this. I have to do this. I have to tick this box. And then I'm, I'm part of God's kingdom. The other people which had been preached to them were getting distracted by this concept of I can do whatever I want it's called license, and God will just forgive me for it. But Paul 
comes in and he's like, no, you've missed it. You need to understand that you have the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, you don't have to be a slave to self. You don't have to be a slave to the law. He just he paints this word picture where we walk so closely on the shoulder of the Holy Spirit, right in his shadow, that when he stops, we stop. When he steps sideways, we step sideways. When he spins, we spin. And because he's holy, he can't lead us anywhere but to places that make us holy. You know, I can testify that sometimes it's easier to exist in slavery than to live in freedom. Sometimes we make friends with the things that bind us up. In fact, Holy Spirit is in this moment right now. There are people in this room right now, you've been bound by the same thing for over 10 years. There is freedom available for you tonight. And the good news is you don't have to do this on your own. You have the Holy Spirit and one of his primary roles is to make you more like Jesus. Number seven, church is a covenant family. Am I growing in a sense of belonging? You know, sometimes it saddens me when I think about the fact that something that God has designed to function as a family has become an optional weekly meeting. This isn't a weekly meeting. This is a family meal. When I go to the movies, I don't normally get to know the people around me. (laughs) I go in, I sit down in my seat, I try to be pretty anonymous, I enjoy the show, I eat some junk, and then I leave. Can we not treat church like that? The person beside you is actually meant to be your brother and sister. They're part of your family. In John 13, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another, underline this, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What would it look like to love one another as Jesus loves us? Jesus was tortured and killed for us. And we're told to love in the same way. And covenant families consider how they can love a fellow Christian as sacrificially and as selflessly as Jesus loves us. When I think about the church as a covenant family, I saw a beautiful example of this the past week with my own daughter, Eden. She's 11. And she has three big brothers. So let's just say she is a survivor. She's going to make it. She's not going to give up. She's going to go harder. She's absolutely a survivor. And of course, you know, her and I are in relationship and connection, but it's natural at her age to want to look at somebody just a little bit older at how to do life. Well, she started year seven just a few weeks ago, and she had to make a speech. And in her speech, she had to cover three things, a highlight, a hardship, and a hero. Her highlight was uh, pretty amazing. She went to fun fields. Her hardship was changing schools and making new friends. Her hero was a young woman from this church, just seven years older than her, who she calls her best friend. And in her speech, she said, she's my hero because she loves God and she loves people. And she always has time for me. Now, in the natural, she mightn't have a big sister in our our immediate family. But here in the family of God, she's got a plethora of big sisters to look up to. 
In Psalm 68, 6, God settles the solitary in a home. Notice it says a home, not a hotel. This is a home. It's not a movie theater. It's not a hotel. It's not a once in a week meeting place. This is a home and you are welcome here. Here's the thing. When we're intentional about healthy culture, when the culture changes, everything else changes. In fact, the whole future can look different. There's a church in America that has so absorbed this revelation of healthy kingdom culture that I was speaking to someone this week whose son's there. They were telling me, you can't go to a cafe or a mechanic or a shop in that town without seeing a student who's laying hands and praying for somebody because they understand kingdom culture. You can't go to that city 10 years ago and now and not notice that it's literally cleaner because the people have such a revelation of blessing their city, they just go and clean stuff. They clean the graffiti off things, they clean the streets. They do prayer walks around the city every day. In fact, emergency services contact, they're allowed to listen to the radio that the emergency services are on, and when there are serious illnesses and accidents that people are called to, they get together and they pray for sick people. When people go missing, they call their prophetic team and say, got any clues, heard anything from God? This is a church living out kingdom culture that's changing the city they live in. And here's what their senior pastor says, for some... The only Bible they will ever read will be the well-lived life of a child of God. Let's make sure that what they read in us represents him well. Can you see the day when our hearts and our church is so full of kingdom culture that Bridge Road looks completely different, that Melbourne looks completely different, that Perth looks different, that Bangkok and San Francisco look completely different. I can see the day. So God, we come before you right now and we offer our lives afresh to you. Lord, you see the world we live in. You see how strong and invasive the culture of the world is. Lord, we want to live your way, but we need your help. We believe in these kingdom culture values. We believe that what you've told us in your word is possible. We want to live this way. So I am praying that the power of the Holy Spirit would fill this room right now, would grip every heart, would give a download of vision of what this could look like in their personal life, in their family, in this church and in this city. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. 
I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.